Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about backlashes. You know, what happens when a developer promises the moon or, you know, several million moons in uh, the particular case we're talking about here with No Man's Sky. And the reception is a, a little bit chillier, perhaps, than, uh, than they would have liked. So, Rob, I think you were, you were the one who wanted to chat about this. And I have also been playing a metric ton of No Man's Sky. I've been sick all week, so I've been playing a lot of No Man's Sky. And uh, I... I devised a method to stay interested in the game and even that method has has been losing efficacy this week let's say it's interesting i wasn't expecting like things to take this turn for you uh because like i got the impression you were pretty high on it last time and that we just sort of had a disagreement about like kind of the the like what we want from games really uh, and so it initially sort of put this on my radar was that as a lot of people started to sour on the game, uh, the first thing I noticed was a slightly condescending uh, <laughs> attitude from developers, but but also a lot of games press about like users complaining about sort of the lack of um, like depth to the game, uh, yeah. really. And it was interesting to me that the first, there was almost like, it felt like there was a circling the wagons attitude around the developer <laughs> of like, well, if these these users are just too dumb to understand how hard game design is, and it's kind of their fault for expecting it to be more than this, which was the first, which was the first part of this that sort of caught my attention. And actually, I kind of wanted to talk about that initially, but yeah. then, then this kept snowballing. Uh, but... I mean, did, did you see any of that? Because that was like the, the very, like within days of this thing's release, um, there seemed to be a lot of sort of eye rolling and, and, and vague mockery about how poorly you like players understand uh, how games are made. And a lot of this seemed to be centered around the fact that people seemed unclear as to whether or not the game had multiplayer in any respect or not. Uh, I, I found that kind of an interesting and, and frankly off putting uh, reaction because. I don't know. It, it was a it was a brand of elitism that sits really poorly with me, which is this idea that game development is hard, so therefore shut up and eat your gruel. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I understand like game development is really really hard, but a lot of jobs are really really hard. And I, I sort of harken back to you know what Jeff Green always used to say on G, GFW Radio, which is like ultimately no one cares. You know when you're playing the game. Like the player, I don't really care how much blood, sweat, and tears is went into that game. You know, like knowing <laughs> knowing some of the background on like Bioshock Infinite didn't make that a better game for me. Um, it, it's ultimately the work has to stand or fall on itself, and the context that went that led up to it isn't really isn't isn't really something important to the player and doesn't it shouldn't be used to sort of invalidate uh players reactions. Yeah, I I definitely agree with that. And I and I went into this kind of I've had like a weird like 
Tom Chick parabola with this game. You know, the way the way Tom Chick likes to talk about the Chick parabola being very high on something, then kind of plateauing and then being a little lower on it. It's not quite as extreme. Maybe it's more of a, a uh, I don't know, a Chick uh, light parabola, a slight parabola. Uh, because I went into this actually pretty low on it, you know, thinking like, oh, you know, whatever, it's, it's being really overhyped. It's never going to live up to that hype. And then being like, wow, this is a really lonely game about being lonely in space. And so it's like a niche kind of thing. But I really dig that. I really appreciate that. And I definitely, uh, definitely agreed that there was some elitism on the part of the press being like, well, you don't understand my alt indie game. You know, you don't, you plebeians don't understand the beauty of in sparseness of space kind of thing, uh, which, you know, to some degree, I, I hope I didn't sound elitist. I, I like that kind of shit. Like, I really just like the, the whole getting lost in space part of this game. And I still love that part of this game. I genuinely think what they made is beautiful and interesting and weird and funky and I really, really like this world, this giant, massive world at, they made. At the same time, Danielle, I'm going to say that one of the things you were sort of joking about is how much better a game it would have been if they hadn't included all that game stuff. In I it. agree completely. I'm still 100% You still, you still stand behind that. So if there was completely. even less there, you'd be happier than you are right now. Correct. Because I've just gotten incredibly bored with the very, very sort of mild gameplay loop of mine a ton of shit. Or, you know, something I did for literally six hours the other day. Like, my flu-like symptoms, mild fever, you know. <laughs> I just made millions of credits on this one planet that had a lot of, uh, I don't know, I think they're called gravitino balls, whatever, some whatever resource that's very valuable. And I made millions and millions and millions of credits by just going out, getting 12 of these things because I have a limited resource pool, going back to the trading post, trading them in for credits, and then just buying a bigger ship that had a bigger <laughs> inventory. And, like, I did all this. By the way, I had a whole method that was working really well for, like, 10 days that I was really, really enjoying because I was getting sort of bored with the, the gameplay itself of the game. Well, not the gameplay, but, like, th these systems, the, the sort of inventory jockeying and mining that I've never liked about the game. Um, but it's required to actually kind of go further and explore more, so I've been engaging with it. And what I was doing is I was putting on like a nice long five hour hardcore history podcast and just going in and doing it, just just going to all the same, you know, resource areas in the game, going to the same sort of, you know, carbon copy little settlements with the same little aliens. And maybe I'll learn a new word, but more likely than not, I will learn, quote unquote, a, a you know, crafting recipe I already know. And then. Going and mining and mining and mining and mining, and then maybe I go to another planet, and then mining and mining and mining and mining. Um, and it, it was really working because I felt like, okay, well, you know, this mining stuff is incredibly boring, and I don't think it adds to the game. And in fact, I think it detracts from this game. But I can get through it as long as I have something interesting going on as well. <laughs> it's starting to wear off entirely. And I really... I. I double down on my wish that this game was just an exploration game or that the mechanics supported just exploration, that it was honestly like a competitive Pokemon snap in weird space. Like that's, that's still the draw for me is seeing weird places, walking around in weird places and wanting to take like really pretty pictures of weird places and weird animals. Um, the mining has gotten less interesting if that's even possible for me. So yeah, it's just... I don't know. 
I've seen some comments on this, and it feels like they kind of did a halfway route with this game that maybe was because they wanted it to be marketable. Maybe they wanted to have the, you know, sort of Minecraft light stamp that they could put on it. But it just takes so much away from this incredibly bold vision that they had of these, whatever, 1.8 quintillion planets or whatever the number is. It doesn't matter in the slightest. I don't know. I think they made a really cool thing, and they watered it down with these kind of boring mechanics and... It bums me out. It really just bums me out. I don't now, know. In terms I, of the hype... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm, but, I, but I'm just saying, like, at the same time, like, the fact that you're still trying to make those mechanics work, like, why can't you just fly around and enjoy that loneliness of space? Why can't you just fly endlessly between point A and B? I mean... That's what like, I wish I could do. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious, like, how does the game stop you from doing that? Like, why can't it be the game you want it to be? Well, it's, it's resource intensive. Like, to go to warp... You need to create a warp cell, which means create, you know, crafting all these like semi-precious materials on several okay. planets. Like, so you always have, you to, have to stop to for keep, gas, basically. Exactly. You always have to stop for gas. And if you want a bigger, better ship that goes a little faster, that has better shields, that has more inventory, which is really the main thing because the inventory management in this game is honestly worse than the mining. <laughs> it's just so aggravating. You can't stack things. It's, oh God, it's just the worst. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why I spent something close to five or six hours getting a better ship just so it would be less of a pain in the ass and I could just do a little more with a little less, basically. Um, yeah, I, I honestly wish... And, and I know some folks who are playing on PC have been playing with sort of like a chill mod for this game that does let you kind of totally explore. And I wish I could do that, but I am playing on PS4. So I'm just kind of... I don't believe... I could be wrong. This could be me not doing my homework, but I don't believe that's an option for me at this time. Uh to play a modded version of this game, basically. Uh, so yeah, it's... God, it just it just poops on the experience, I think. It's just like a big piece of dinosaur poo on this beautiful, gorgeous, weird thing that they made. So the other part... The other thing that started to happen, though, is that it went from sort of being a, a sort of fringe reaction, I guess we could say. You know, in those first days, there were already people who were like, hey, why isn't there more to this? And that's yeah. where you saw the sort of defensive, like, oh, silly gamer... Uh, how, how dare you, how, how dare you question, uh, you know, how, like who, who are you These to ask gods for? who have made this universe. Yeah, yeah. kind of. There was a, there was <laughs> totally. a bit of that. It, it, there was a, there was a bit of, you just don't understand how hard game development is. You like, you don't understand what you're asking, which, which is fair. Like that is, I imagine that is a really recurrent and frustrating theme for a developer, which is. You get a lot of, you should have done X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z add up to, you know, $6 million of additional budget and like eight months of of development time. Uh, And and so, like, I understand there's that frustration, but at the same time, like, I'm very big on, uh, like, sort of looking at what is driving complaints like that rather than focusing on ways in which that complaint or proposed solutions for it are invalid, right? Like, when, when, like, obviously people are feeling a certain way. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's worth listening to that. And now it appears that increasingly a lot of players are just kind of done with this game. Uh, yeah. I've noticed like it's it's been striking to watch it sort of like plummet off my Steam friends list. Um, <laughs> it's like it feels like um, it, it feels like No Man's Sky. A lot of people have decided like, yep, it's definitely not mine, uh, and, and sort of and sort of chucked it and. That now, now I'm witnessing this other weird thing. It's um, it's almost like in the producers, 
where it turns into a hit show and the and the, the, the where did we go right uh, song like like how like how did we get here like everyone suddenly is like pointing fingers like is it is it hype culture right is it the way media like like basically joins the hype machine and the marketing machine and creates these impossible expectations uh, did Hello Games basically lie. Uh, did they, or or did they, did they at least allow sort of the fires of hype to burn out of control uh, rather than maybe set expectations? Uh, to a degree, is this Sony's fault for taking kind of a a weird, um, almost like a tech demo, an indie tech demo, and turning oh, yeah. it into like Showcase. a system flagship? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's been interesting to watch that as well because it's like this this awful morning after, uh, <laughs> like that everyone was so ready, like everyone was everyone was so excited to be into No Man's Sky that now that the reality is here and it's maybe not that much more than the weirdo tech demo that it was initially promised to be. Uh, that there's this, there's all this sort of finger pointing and uh, like a degree of introspection that I also find uh, really, really interesting because I, I do think it's, it's, it's rare you see a game fail to meet expectations so radically, but it's also rare that you have a game that was so murky about what those expectations should be in the first place, right? Like this is the, this is the weird thing watching this for me is that I was always a little skeptical of this game because I never understood what it was like. Like my question was always like, well, what do you do? Yeah. And I don't know, basically to a degree, like as, as, as it's come out and I'm I'm seeing these reactions to it, it's, it's kind of what I thought it was going to be all along, which is why I, I, I sort of decided a while ago, this, this probably isn't for me. Um, but what's what's amazing to me is like somehow a huge portion of its audience got in it, into its head that No Man's Sky was going to be something entirely different and just what you wanted. And I like I'm kind of wondering like where did that like when did that happen? I think that's a very very good question. And I also wonder at some level how much the development team and you know Sean Murray being sort of the front man and the designer of this also kind of plays into that. Like, the way that he's always sort of presented, you know, as this very affable, friendly, you know, maybe a little shy Englishman who is who is sort of like, in some ways looks like the prototypical indie developer that the press loves. You know, we all love people like this. We, we have such a good time, you know, interviewing someone who's so articulate and, and, you know, kind of charming and maybe a little timid in a way, but like in a very kind of charming way. And I wonder how much that impacted this as well. You know, seeing him at E3 being like, oh, you know, we made this giant world and, you know, kind of it's it's like this very charming kind of presentation that fits so perfectly into the the sort of the narrative that, you know, when I say the media, I don't mean like, oh, the mass media, but like kind of the, the narrative about this game and about the way this game was made was was sort of this little fairy tale. Uh, and, and I think that has to do with the way too. it was. Like right because yeah, like, yeah, that's when true. He, when yeah. he appeared on Colbert and uh, as I understand that's it like true. a lot of the hype began to materialize around some offhand remarks he made on Colbert which is Colbert yeah. I think asks a question basically to the effect of like can other people see me or something like that and yeah. he was like well you'd have to arrive at the same place at the same time which is extremely unlikely yeah. but that implied that it was 
you know, possible. that it's possible, right? Yeah. That, like, well, if by some chance one intelligent life form in this galaxy encounters another, uh, they will sort of be there in each other's world. They can world. hold hands and go skipping along the planet together. You know, yeah. That, yeah. Does, the idea does, was planted for despite sure. The, yeah. And, and it's, it's a weird, it's a weird exchange. It's, it's a weird moment on the show, but the other part of that appearance on Colbert was that he was absolutely playing the part of like the charming, diffident, otherworldly toy maker. Yes, um, for sure. Here to tell mass audiences in America about this amazing creation. And like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. Like, I think to a degree, there was this element of like Sean Murray, hello games was kind of tailor made for what people, how people perceive like the indie movement such as it yeah. is. Uh, yeah. And already it's like, what, what a garbage term, but you know, when you say like, <laughs> sure. like indies or, or indie games, like it, like, I think we both get a sense of like who we're talking about and like the various aesthetics involved, which yeah. is interesting in itself. But Sean Murray, hell games seemed very much to sort of mesh with that, that vision and the no man's sky by it's very, by it's very, caginess about what what you're supposed to do in it and it's it's apparent like purposelessness as far as like the player goes was sort of flattering to some of the assumptions or ambitions we have about sort of the future of play i i'm just a little bummed about the entire thing uh, even as somebody who had really no like i had a vague interest in it just because i like colorful space things um you know sort of throughout but i I kind of always had a sense that, like, the hype is just going to crush this whole thing. And it did, but in a very different way than I expected it to, if that makes sense. Like, in a, it just in a, I thought it was going to be a bombastic and stupid <laughs> kind of game instead of a lonely and beautiful game that was brought down by its sort of more commercial elements. And uh, I don't know, it, it really does make me a little bit sad. I, 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 <laughs> I've played more than 24 hours of this game. I, I've probably played about 30 hours um, and I will continue to play it. I just, man, do I wish it was just a little bit different. It's, it's 80%. For me, it really is maybe 70, we'll call it 75% of the way towards a game of the year kind of game for me, for sure. It just, it's missing that hook of, of either a more social kind of gameplay or, or just, absolute faith in its in its vision and sort of its conviction that would have made it like really something spectacular i am not a hundred percent sold that there was actually a vision there to have faith in. <laughs> yeah um, I, I mean i guess I, I guess i mean the uh the whole again here i am buying into the narrative again but but the whole idea of of hello games plastering their walls like literally just plastering their walls with sci-fi book covers from the 80s like that as much as that is a vision, that is something that appeals to me. But you're right. I I agree. There there probably was a loss of really coherent vision, at least for what the game would actually play like and feel like. I think this this also just plays into my always always deep suspicion of space as a theme. Because yeah. like it just feels like space has this really dangerous blank canvas quality mm. to it when we think about like the possibilities of it as a fictional or or playful space and 
I, you know, it, it sort of feels like, you know, here once again, we had this idea of how much can be in this game. Like how, like what is there to do in this game? Like how, like how big is the world? Uh, how long will it take to play? And the answer was, you know, as, 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 as many as there are stars in the sky. And <laughs> that's all very beautiful and poetical, but Mass Effect feels like a world and it has like six locations. You know what I mean? Like this yes. is like this is yes. this is the thing, right? Is I think space holds out this pot like as a theme holds out this possibility of these like richly imagined worlds um, that will sort of feel like you're stepping into like a great work of sci-fi. Yeah. But when you look at those works, usually they're very specific. They're very localized. You know what I mean? Like great space opera is never about sort of the uh, vastness of space. It's about the little islands of community within it. Yes. And once again, we've we've sort of had a game that sort of taps into that fantasy, but it's such a poorly understood fantasy by the people who like hold on to it like most dearly. You end up that no, that no game can de- no game can deliver on it because what it, what is wanted are two really contradictory things: um, endless open. Uh, space and exploration, but also some sort of compelling dis- sense of discovery. Uh, you know, there has to be a there, there. Um, yeah. And I feel like this is sort of the uh, space exploration combat equivalent of oh, what you see in a lot of a lot of space forex games. It's unfortunate that it's that it's taken this turn. But at the same time, like it, it always, games like this always leave me feeling like, yep, Lucy pulled the football away from Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a pretty great image for this, I think. Ah, oh, God, and and I'm one of those people who loves the space fantasy and who likes the, I like the loneliness and I like the long distances between places, between quote unquote interesting places. I I like that. I like walking around in these desolate landscapes but yeah maybe they didn't do enough navel gazing honestly sort of from the beginning about what it is that's fascinating about these worlds and what it is that's really really interesting and 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 special about space exploration i'm trying to think have we ever played a good version of no Man's Sky, like that the game about loneliness <laughs> and being sort of like lost yes. in a drift. Like, does that game exist? Have we already seen it and encountered it? Like, we have, and it's called Core of Discovery or Corpse of Discovery. Okay, I forget what it's. I, I, it's which looks ridiculously like No Man's Sky. When I first played No Man's Sky, I was like, wow, this looks a lot like Corpse of Discovery. It was a very small indie game from about two years ago, and it was about an astronaut who. You sort of wake up in this little facility, your little, you know, very temporary home on whatever planet, and you work for this soulless corporation, of course. And they're like, you're going to get to see your family at the end of this mission. You do this boring mission. You've got to mine something, and it's dangerous, and maybe you die, maybe you don't. And you wake up another day, and it's like, oh, really soon you're going to get to see your family. And you're kind of going on these random-looking planets that look kind of same color scheme, kind of very generally very similar-looking UI and everything. Like, it, it was uncanny when I first started playing no Man's Sky, how much it looked like this much more, much smaller and much more narratively driven game. And it was very much about loneliness and very much about how, you know, work will take you away from your family. But this was in a, you know, kind of on the nose, a very literal sense. But 
I really enjoyed that game. Um, yeah, 2014, maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, I just found it on um, Steam. It looks, um, the vibe I'm getting from the description is it's video game moon. Very much so. Yes, very, very much so. Uh, and I think it was very successful at sort of creating that atmosphere. And, uh, you know, it felt lonely. It felt like you're doing boring things on a lonely planet because it's your job to do that, uh, which is sort of the premise of No Man's Sky. But it also had a very direct narrative as well. And I think that really helped that game kind of find its way. I don't think it really took off. I, I don't often see people talking about it, uh, but I think it's pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, maybe No Man's Sky could have potentially taken some kind of cues around. I'm not sure, because obviously the scale of the game is totally different. And this one kind of had a a very specific point it wanted to make for sure. But yes, I would call that the good version of this, or at least, you know, much more limited version of this, but the good and pointed kind of version of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's telling you sort of went for pointed there, right? Like you, you have to know what you're about ultimately. And uh, like, I think I, I certainly tend to gravitate towards games that are kind of, maybe subtext is too generous a way of putting it for, for some games, but that sort of know what their, know what they know, what their main subtextual like narrative or point is. Yeah. Uh, and, and sort of build around that and, and have an actual thrust in that direction rather than, um, you know, just here's, here's a bunch of sort of procedural mechanics and yeah. uh, it is what it is. And you can, you can just take it and, and do what you will with it. I, I like, if a game kind of has an understanding of what's sort of lying beneath the surface of those mechanics, then I tend to be a lot more engaged, right? Like, so like yeah. going back to like elite, for instance, the, the, the yeah. rap on elite was always that elite was this product and critique of um, like Thatcherite England, uh, really. Mm-hmm. And if you sort of look at it through those, through that lens, it becomes actually even more interesting. Uh, and its own meaninglessness ends up being kind of a mark in its in its favor, right? Because it's like, it is a game that explicitly says, like, welcome to the rat race. Here's a variety of menial tasks you can do. And you can't really change the world. Um, you're never going to be, you're never going to have any power here, but you can maybe make enough money to survive. And have the illusion of prosperity. Uh, but that sort of works a little more for me. Uh, I, I, though I question whether Elite Dangerous really has that same <laughs> thrust. Because I think Elite might have gotten... Uh, is so swept up in the simulation that it, it is a less pointed critique. But sure. it might be a better game for that. Oh, yeah. I I, I don't doubt it. I mean, Cor- Corpse of Discovery was... Uh, I quite enjoyed it. I, I thought it had a lot of value to it. But it wasn't... Uh, it, I think it was only like a, you know, maybe a, a few hours and, and it's not, it doesn't really have much replayability and that sort of thing. It wasn't mechanically super interesting. It was more that the story and sort of the, the general themes yeah. of it were, were cool and interesting. So yeah. Play Corpse of Discovery and Elite Dangerous and between them, you will get the perfect No Man's Sky experience. <laughs> uh, and now that we've solved that problem, I think we should, uh, we should go on to our letters to our weekend correspondence. Sounds but first. Good. A word from our sponsor. Danielle, do you know what is one of the most important things I've realized over the past few months? That you're never 
ever going to regain momentum on your Witcher playthrough and you should just start the game over and enjoy the first act all over again? Okay, so it turns out that I've had two important realizations, uh, but the other one, it's about socks. I realized they're maybe one of the most important things. Not even a hint of a lie here, but the quality of my day is significantly affected by whether or not I can put on a clean pair of my good socks, or if I have to fall back on my crappy white cotton crew socks with the worn through sole. You know, it sounds like you've given a lot of thought to this. Well, Danielle, you know, when your feet aren't comfortable, good socks are the only thing you can think about. And that's why I recommend people check out Bombas. Bombas make simple, arguably stylish, Arguably stylish? Rob, are you negging our goddamn sponsor? All I'm saying, Danielle, is I'm glad that if you go to getbombas.com slash weekend, you'll find they've got neon for you and solid whites and navies for me. Okay, Rob, that's a fine choice if you want your sock drawer to look like the sartorial equivalent of Mitt Romney's haircut, but forgive me if I want socks with a little more whimsy and character. All right, Danielle, we could, we could argue sock colors and patterns all night long, but can you argue with a reinforced footbed or added arch support. Is there anything better than feeling like your feet are being cradled in the skilled hands of a talented masseuse, even when you're standing in line at the grocery store? Well, not when you put it like that, no. But personally, I'm a huge fan of the fact that that for every pair of socks I buy from Bombas, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter. Same reason we both love a good pair of socks is the same reason they're so crucial for shelters. Our feet get more wear and tear than any other part of our bodies, and a fresh pair of socks can keep that from turning into injury and pain. So if you're at home treating your ears to an episode of Idle Weekend, why don't you treat your feet to the equivalent, a new set of socks from getbombas.com weekend. Personally, I like the men's solid calf and ankle eight pack. And I like the Bright's ankle eight pack. Oh. Because I'm not a crypto fascist. But what? even if you are, you can still get a good pair of socks at getbombas.com slash weekend, and you'll get 20% off your first order. We have quite a few amazing letters uh, this weekend. Thank you so much to everyone who writes in. Our very first letter comes from Bruce in uh, Manila, Philippines. After a few episodes of Idle Weekend, I found that I tend to decide more with Rob than Danielle. In fact, many of the games Danielle likes are games I have zero interest in, example, Alien Isolation, and I constantly disagree with her ideas of how games could be improved, example, difficulty settings in Dark Souls. And that's why I listen to Idle Weekend. You do a good job at articulating why you like or dislike things. Your discussions allow me to see things from a completely different perspective. Although my preferences prevent me from enjoying some games, uh, for example, walking simulators and RPGs, at least I can appreciate them from afar. So my question, how much effort do you put into reading or listening other people's opinions and reviews, especially if they run contrary to your own? This could be in the context of writing your own review or just checking what the public, critics, and pundits think of a game you like. Bruce. I have a whole system <laughs> when it comes to reviews. I never let myself... Um, read anyone else's criticism of a game that I am reviewing until I am done, till the text is final and it's up on the site or it's scheduled on the site. And then I'm allowed, you know, uh, you know nobody else is forcing this on me, but I am. Uh, then I'm allowed to go and read everything else. And I do actually, when I review a game, I do actually try to read as many reviews as possible because I, I just get curious what other people saw in something, whatever people felt about something. Um, and I kind of have to be careful 
uh, with other forms of media, because there are times where I, I go so bananas reading everything about something that occasionally I sort of burn out on it. And this actually happened uh, to me with Stranger Things, uh, which was a series that somehow was not a weekend project, even though I loved it. And I watched the entire thing in like two days with my girlfriend and I adored it and I loved it and I thought it was great. And then I read a little too much about it and sort of never want to hear anything about Stranger Things again until the second season. And uh, yeah, so as long as I'm careful about burnout, I, I do actually really enjoy reading a lot of opinions about stuff that I have, you know, played or watched or, or listened to, whatever. Um, and in general, as like a general rule in my life, I, I try really, really hard to listen to people and talk to people and read things that I don't necessarily agree with. I sort of um, got really, really frustrated on Twitter a couple of years ago, being in something of a bubble, <laughs> politically speaking. And even though I am very, very resolute in my political beliefs, let's say, I, I felt the need to kind of branch out a little bit and, and do a little bit of reading sort of outside of myself, not to change my mind about anything, but just to feel as if, I don't know, I, I just don't like the feeling of being in a bubble. So I, I really like appreciate and, and make an effort to kind of go outside of my own little world sometimes when it comes to opinions. I don't really change mine too often, but I, I like to appreciate where other people are coming from. Yeah, I used to be better about that. And that was largely a function of just having a little more time. Uh, this sure. was more important for me around like political writing. Uh, I used to mm -hmm. read uh, like the National Review, uh, Ooh, yeah. the New Republic, the New okay. Statesman, and occasionally the Nation. Uh, and for Ooh. a while there, American <laughs> Conservative. I always enjoyed the National Review way, way more than the New Republic. Sure. Because the National Review was, uh, in a lot of cases, slightly better written. Uh, but also, it wasn't as contemptible as the New Republic mm -hmm. uh, was. I like The New Republic drove me crazy because it was this milquetoast <laughs> version of liberalism uh, that like secretly like didn't want to stand up for anything. Uh, it yeah. just wanted to defend sort of the neoliberal consensus and sort of shrug <laughs> its shoulders and be like, well, this could be better, but what really else? you're dumb for expecting yeah. anything more. Um, yeah. Whereas the National Review sort of at least argued its corner and, and had a vision. What sort of poisoned me on that was that uh, sort of as as intellectually, I would say the right wing of the Republican Party started to bleed uh, about... I think that's more than fair, yes. Yeah, about a decade or so ago, if not longer. And I think that's more than fair. And also, uh, you know, to be fair to those who are, uh, you know, very intellectually gifted and on the conservative side, I, I think they are as frustrated with that as uh, folks on our side are as well, <laughs> or maybe even more so. Yeah, although I think part of the, the part of the thing that sort of ended up chasing me away from the National Review was also realizing like how much its sort of conception of intellectual conservatism was also kind of um, was also kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, that like a lot of it depended on sort of a incredibly selective memory about Barry Goldwater. And who he really was. For sure. Um, and it sure as shit required a very selective memory of who William F. Buckley was. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, God, the real death blow was I attended this talk by Dinesh D'Souza. And I was like, oh, f like, Jesus Christ, this is this is awful. Uh, boy, boy, was that guy a snake oil salesman. Um, yeah. But 
so I ended up like I got I got I, I just tend to get away from a lot of that because I think one reason you sort of end up settling into a bubble is eventually you you sort of hit a point with some people like aren't making arguments in good faith uh, necessarily or they're just never doing the thing uh, that, that particularly interests you so yeah. where I would like where I would say this this works with criticism is that um you know like I, I think Tom Chick is kind of my go to example of someone who. <laughs> ends up taking a lot of stances that are pretty contrarian. But I think unlike a lot of people who sort of present themselves as contrarians, um, his arguments are always really, really sound. Like I've never had, I have never once read a review of his and felt like he was just being negative to sort of be smarter than thou or more critical than thou. Like I've always, even of games I've loved that he's panned, I've always come away being like, huh, yeah, I guess that is all in there. And <laughs> yeah. I don't I need to figure out how I feel about that. I'm sort of forced to sort of sort of forced to uh reexamine my views. I, I think something that bothers me a little bit though is is criticism is getting harder and harder to find. Um yes. and that's true in games and that's true in film. Um, you know, there's you know, there's there's Wesley Morris and and Manola Dargis, but in in terms of of great film critics, it, it feels like there's just not a ton that are that are out there working right now, or they they don't have the formats uh, to allow for for a lot of critique. And I think the problem is even more acute in in games, uh, where reviews still tend to have this. Uh, obligation to be purchasing recommendations, mm-hmm. uh, which is often the least interesting question you can sort of answer about a game. Because actually, yeah. I think the answer in general, unless something is, is truly abysmal trash, is that, yeah, it might be worth it, worth your time to play this game. Check it out, even if it doesn't work, because the ways it doesn't work is interesting. Uh, so I think the difficulty I have is, like, it, it's difficult to find that reliable wellspring of critique you're going to disagree with uh, that'll sort of challenge your assumptions like do, do you feel that do you do you feel like it's just harder to find like yeah that that there's a lot of middle of the road opinions that are a little bit interchangeable and it's harder to find the ones that are really going to sort of push beyond that comfort zone yeah i mean i i completely agree with tom chick being kind of the go-to he's never written something i i thought was poorly written you know and i keep i keep looking for it just in case it ever happens but it never happens <laughs> and uh i i like the writing of uh nick capazzoli I think he's a he's a pretty great reviewer, uh, you know, critic. It's it is a little hard to find, honestly. It is hard to find people who are critics. Although, you know, now that I'm thinking of it, um, AVB and Zeal they do some great work over there as well. It's not always you know sort of pure criticism, but it is very interesting and and very fresh writing on games, and I do appreciate them as well. Um, but yeah, it it is hard because the things that sell are not, you know. <laughs> intelligent, reasoned, you know, perhaps more than a thousand word pieces are just not really selling so hot in, in the terms of, of, you know, game journalism. And uh, we, we do all sort of look for traffic. That is kind of our business is, is traffic. And we all kind of need to go where the, where the hotness is. It's not what we do all the time for sure, but um, you know, the lights need to stay on, the paychecks need to <laughs> continue to come to us so we can eat and live. I'm hoping that with YouTube becoming such a thing and with uh, not just Let's Players, but folks who actually do really good criticism, Campster on YouTube is great. Uh, Some folks known as Cool Ghosts do amazing, 
awesome analyses of games that are really sort of heartfelt and really, really fun and interesting. Um, I'm hoping some of that stuff kind of uh, takes off a little bit more. Uh, some of the, some of the, you know, the, uh, I don't think there's even really a term for this, but you know, the, the, the more intellectual YouTubers and, and they're not, you know, intellectuals on, on the sort of way we talk about with, with writing, they're not, you know, writing, maybe, yeah, yeah, reflective, thoughtful, you know, YouTubers, um, they're not writing, you know, thesis papers. Uh, so yeah, I go to those folks whenever I'm, uh, I'm interested in, in seeing some good perspectives, but it, it is hard. It is really hard to find that. And uh, frankly, it's it's still hard to find really great writing in games, criticism or not. It's it's still tough. It's always been tough. It's easier now than it has been possibly in the past, but it, it's it's still not you know the norm yet. So well, and, uh, yeah. and actually, I think I question whether at this point like it'll ever be the norm because the amount of time that you're sort of allowed to work on things now is just it's in the gutter. Yeah, um, you can't if you can't deliver the review within like three days of the release date, um, yeah, nobody (laughs) wants it. Uh, so like, and the editors, like there's not going to be the fourth draft where you really nail it. If it takes you four, right? Four drafts to get there. Um, you're not going to get that job again. Or, I mean, um, yeah, we're, we're at the point. I mean, uh, speaking honestly as a reviews editor, where if something takes too much editing, uh, I will rewrite half of a draft and yep. we'll call it one and a half drafts. And, and that's just what it has to be, because, you know, if you're not on the A-list, you're not getting code three weeks ahead of time and you need to get stuff up right away. So, yeah, yeah, it, it needs the skill set now for writers and games and people who are constructing, you know, interesting criticism on games. It, speed is part of it. And speed is not always conducive to those really thoughtful, you know, yeah. second, third and fourth reflections on something. All right. Uh, our next email comes from Ben from Wales. Uh, Hi there, R&D. I recently played through Telltale's first episode of the Batman series, and despite it being far from the greatest work, I thoroughly enjoyed the sections played from Mr. Wayne's perspective rather than the Caped Crusader. Uh, Telltale have, at least with this first episode, set out to tell the Batman tale from a human angle, which got me thinking about the possibility of Telltale making games with a more realistic feel, uh, than any of the Telltale games have thus far uh, attempted uh, to try attempted. Um, but do you think there is scope for a Telltale series more grounded in reality? Uh, and would you play like Telltale's The Godfather or even Telltale's <laughs> Pride and Prejudice? Uh, just imagine Mr. Darcy will remember this. Uh, or to take it even further, perhaps they could attempt uh, to retell a refam- uh, famous historical events, such as playing through Scott's expedition to uh, the Antarctic. Uh, P.S. Telltale Witcher game, yes or no? Uh, so, just to that last point, secretly, the reason The Witcher works is because it's a really lavish Telltale game, in some ways. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's a Telltale game with then an entire, like, deep game sort of bolted onto it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, it's, like, you don't need, you like, to to Telltale-ify uh, The Witcher would be entirely redundant given how narrative and choice-focused that game is. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Not that it wouldn't be fun to do the kind of comic book style of it, especially if they went completely, you know, like, Minecraft story mode, totally goofy with it, but... Yeah, it really doesn't need it. It's already such a... Ah, oh, it's already great. You already know how we feel about The Witcher. Um, 
I kind of love the idea of of Telltale's The Godfather. Like, out of all of these, that got me really excited. Like, I, man, it's already such a great kind of morality play that, and such a sort of rich and and wonderful and atmospheric kind of thing that I, I actually think they could do that. Plus, it has a license. I mean, that's that's the thing, right, with Telltale Games now is they are going after those big licenses for sure. And they could probably pull off The Godfather, I feel like. That, that might actually be popular enough. And I would love Scott's expedition to the Antarctic. I just, I don't know. I don't know if they would make that because I don't know if it would be profitable. But I, I would dig these sort of story-based, uh, you know, gamey looks at, at really incredible and awesome and interesting stories from history and also from, you know, popular works of fiction. That would be, that would be great. I mean, they, they've already staffed up so much. Why not? Go ahead. Make a Godfather game, Telltale. I would, I would like that. Like, I think it's it's a really cool idea. Um, I'm surprised, like, you gravitated towards the Godfather one. For me, Pride and Prejudice was the one I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, I play, I, the pri- I I play Pride not, and Prejudice. I'm not much of an Austin fan, I, I admit. I'm... I'm the hell, okay, what, what's that about? I, I don't know. I just... I haven't read them since high school, so maybe I should go back a little bit and, you know... But I, mean, I, I just I never I never really clicked with those novels. Like I, I I read Pride and Prejudice in like my junior year of high school, and I I couldn't tell you much of what happened in it, other than Mr. Darcy was like you know dark and handsome, and you know there's a whole lot of society stuff. And I see this is just like philosophy wow. brain. Yeah, this okay. is what happens. This is what happens when it's been too long for me. It, it's certainly like there was a whole bunch of society stuff. Is very much the like. You can't yada 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 that. Emmanuel Danielle. Kant like, did something. Yeah. See, who uh, brain over here? It's <laughs> a little bit of an issue. Yeah, but I, I think the the other issue is that, and I think you already see it a little bit with the Telltale series in general. Is just <laughs> as you sort of broaden it out, doesn't it feel like each game, each time out, you see behind the curtain a little more, and oh, yeah. like you see the decision trees and the way they sort of are a little bit illusory. Like you can see it a little more clearly each time. And would that start to become grating? You know what I mean? Like you're playing the Godfather. Um, would it start to frustrate you that no matter what you did, um, your Sonny Corleone was still going to get gunned down in a toll booth in, you know, New Jersey. Um, but it'd be great if it didn't have to be like that. If it actually was a little more open-ended, which that, is entirely yeah. possible that I would, I would, Oh, I would well, God, love yeah. that. Because the Godfather invites that sort of thinking, right? Because like the way the Godfather 2 ends, it goes back to the Christmas dinner where, or it was a birthday dinner uh, for for the Don, uh, where the family was all gathered just after Pearl Harbor, and Michael announces he's joined the Marines. Mm -hmm. And... Sonny tears into him. You know, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're, you're doing, you're going against the family. Dad got you out of this. Um, he has big plans for you. And Michael just looks at him and he's like, you know, what about my plans? Yeah. And, it, you know, and coming at that point in the story where everything's sort of set, um, but that, 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 that those two films sort of invite that, like, was there another way this could have gone? You know what I mean? Like, it was was this a tragic inevitability, or was Michael so very close, and he was just a few choices, a few contingencies away from sort of making his escape? God, that'd be amazing. It'd be interesting. It would be an interesting space for a Telltale game to explore. That's for sure. Hope they do. I hope you're listening, Telltale. 
<laughs> Telltale as if it's one person. Uh, anyway, the uh, next letter comes from Jake. I don't think it's Jake. It's not our, our Jake. Jake. I think it's a different Jake. Jake writes. False Jake. Hi, Weekenders. <laughs> I've only been reliably following your casts for the past few months now, so I've been going through the backlog, picking up all I missed. My, oh my, did I miss quite a lot. Last night, I listened to your cast on soft spots in video games, aspects that can elevate a mediocre at best game into something you love. This spurred me on to asking something that has been mulling in my head for a while now, which really uh, applies to media in general. Do you have any narrative soft spots that elicit feelings of sorrow, melancholy, or solemnity, essentially whenever they're brought up? To give an example, whenever dementia is displayed in a form of media, it whips me out of whatever my current mood is, leaves me far more solemn and contemplative. Over the past year and a half, I've been living with my aging grandfather who has Alzheimer's, doing my best to help care for him. So whenever I see dementia tackled in media, it causes me to think of my grandfather and all that he struggles through. It really brings me down a peg for at least 10 minutes. Even if the description, or excuse me, the depiction of dementia is really poor and inaccurate, it still elicits this reaction out of me. Sometimes it feels like a cheap trick to get me to emotionally connect with whatever narrative I'm currently interacting with. Are certain topics inherently easier to provoke emotion in their consumers? Been rambling too long. Going to end this here. Keep up the good cast. Can't wait till next Friday. Sincerely, Jake. I have a few. Maybe I have more than most people. Um, number one is, is I think, a really common one. And that is, like, pretty much whenever there's something about cancer in any anything, I will be very sensitive to it. Um, I won't go on and on. I'm not a cancer survivor, but I've known... Many and I've known, uh, you know, a lot of folks in my family. I had I had a really ridiculous uh, streak of like six months when like five family members died, and it was rough and sucked. And yeah, it's always going to be a soft spot for me. I I also you know was with uh, a doctor for a long time with my partner, and uh, when she when she you know was working on sort of the uh, pediatric cancer wards, there were a lot of deaths, and it was it was just really hard. And I you know I sort of went with her, and I I did little things at the hospital. I like, you know, gave out some of my old games and toys and, you know, promotional stuff that game companies give to you and that sort of thing. And it's just always going to be like, oh my fucking God, they, you know, they went there whenever any kind of media does, which is not a reason for me to not watch. I'll watch pretty much anything or play pretty much anything, but it will get that reaction from me. I'm pretty much always going to go cry after anything ends poorly uh, with any kind of storyline on cancer. Uh, I mean, I think, like, I've brought it up a couple times on the show, but, like, games that sort of study, like, grief, loss, regret, stuff like that, um, tends to be a shortcut to my heart. I don't know, like, fully why that is. I, like, you know, it's just I've always been, like, a bit of a melancholy person, I, I think. Um, and when a game sort of explores that that feeling... Uh, and all the nuances of it and the things that the weird things that prompt that stir feelings up and like when a game seems to get that that is really affecting for me it's why like you know a game like the original darkness which is on one level just about like yeah rip these guys apart with your tentacles and sick your <laughs> demon army on them uh ends up being one of my favorite uh and most emotionally resonant games because it's also about feeling like the bottom has dropped out of your reality and somehow it's all your fault. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that tends to uh, really, really speak to me. 
We had another question about like sort of weirdly somebody else asked about soft spots this week as well. Uh, it was another email <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to put a more cheery spin on it. Um, <laughs> I also just have things that is very easy for a game to pander to, and I will end up just being like, you know, hell yeah, this is this is this is my shit. And uh, so now that I've got the home entertainment center, uh, you know, I've got a giant ass screen and really good sound system and all this stuff. And my neighbors are going to hate me soon, but they can suck it because uh, they were moving furniture around at, at 1230 last night when I needed to get up early. So, you know. Eat it. It's on. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I could, I could leave a note or like knock on the door, but no, fuck that. I'm just gonna watch like Heat at three in the morning with the sound up. God damn uh, right. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I was like, what shall I play to sort of savor uh, this new uh, this new home theater setup? And there were a lot of games I could I could play, but the one I settled on was The Order 1886, and this oh, was a game nice. that I had no expectations of whatsoever. I bought it for like six bucks in. The summer sale uh, on PlayStation Plus, and it's if you're not familiar if you're not familiar with this, it's like what if the Arthurian knights just like lived forever and yeah. were in Victorian England fighting werewolves, and the aesthetic, <laughs> the aesthetic is basically like Dishonored meets Ripper Street. Oh, yeah. and there is no way that is not my shit. Like the <laughs> moment, like there's this moment where the character like sort of steps out onto this balcony, and it's sort of like you survey the the filthy uh, London skyline, except there's fucking zeppelins flying over it and shit, oh. and everyone's got like everyone's got like amazing facial hair and like just jackets full of like buttons and gold braid. Why? Who the fuck knows? I don't awesome. need to know. Just yeah. just wear the, wear that cape. Wear that cape like you <laughs> wear, wear that cape like you. You're going to get murdered in that cape or something like that. To quote uh, Tracy Jordan. Perfect. But I like this game more than I should. Because I am fully aware that it's like lots of watching the game sort of just characters sort of talk. And then there's a little sort of desultory shooting and all that. And it's... It's all beautifully rendered and all that, but like again, there's not there's not a whole lot of like great shooter design there. It's perfectly serviceable, but just thematically and the way it's presented and just the world you're sort of stepping into, I'm like, yeah, I am a hundred and ten percent on board with this. Uh, and then the fact that it, it ends up it, it is sort sort of jam packed with this really intriguing backstory that like it's a really exciting and engaging world. Even if the game isn't that great, and it kind of makes me regretful that there's not going to be like a bunch of these because I'm so all in on this premise right now that I'm like, no, somebody should just take this ball and run with it. Oh man, I've I've heard I have a couple of things. First, I've heard that that game kind of got a raw, you know, the crappy end of the stick, so to speak, when when it came to review season. So I I am still really curious about it for many of the reasons that you note. And, you know, sort of on my happy list of the, you know, of the soft spot, you know, extreme feelings and uh, anything that lets me be a lesbian in space automatically, I don't care how much of a piece of shit it is. I'm probably going to love it. It's probably going to be 10 out of 10 best game ever. And also any game that like or, or piece of media that really aligns with me politically about an issue that is not like a super hot button issue in, you know, they are hot button issues, but they're not the sort of thing I look at all day, every day, the way I did when I worked at the ACLU. Like, I remember there was a game that uh, sort of had a death with dignity kind of sequence, and I'm I'm very 
much for that uh, with the proper regulations. And I, and of course, this was a wonderful opportunity for me to rant at my poor girlfriend uh, for an hour and a half about, you know, my feelings on the issue. Same thing with, uh, you know, the most recent seasons. Is this of the Orange one that broke up Black. with you? No, no, this is okay. my current poor girlfriend. Okay. Um, and like recent seasons of Orange is the New Black, it's like I get so excited and I get so happy about it, the show has some problems. That's not what I'm saying. But like about how hard it's going after the prison industrial complex. I will literally jump out of my seat, do a dance, and then rant at my poor girlfriend about how excited I am that a piece of mass media is going after this issue that has been destroying segments of the American population for you know many years now. And uh, yep, I will always get really happy and excited for those things. Um, yay. Oh, man. <laughs> I miss the ACLU sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um so I think our last letter here, because just speaking of lesbians in space, I'm just going to yeah. read this last letter. And it's actually <laughs> like, I'm not, like uh, the question's fine, whatever. I, I, but the setup for it is, is really, really good. Yeah. Uh, this one comes from Johnny. Dear Rob and Danielle, Mass Effect has come up in the last couple episodes and this reminded me of my experience with the series. I never played it, but I didn't need to since I sat next to my wife almost, almost the entirety of her playthrough of the series. <laughs> During character creation, she, she set Shepard's class to Vanguard, misjudged how severely lowering the corners of her mouth would affect <laughs> animations, and went on adventures with the universe's most extreme resting bitch face. <laughs> she played through the game entirely as a paragon, with one exception. Oh, she God. took every opportunity to insult, belittle, <laughs> or just generally be an asshole towards Liara. Oh, no! In every other aspect of the game, she was an exemplar of virtue and magnanimity. But she took every opportunity available to dunk on that poor, on that poor no! Asari. Eventually, the Shadow Broker DLC made Liara a much more interesting character in my wife's eyes. And by Mass Effect 3, they were best buds. Still, my version of Mass Effect was a hilarious juxtaposition of a selfless saint who would cross the galaxy to pick up a, a trinket you mentioned in passing, uh, who would also enthusiastically throw one specific companion under the bus whenever possible. Oh my god! Morality systems in games can sometimes push you to adhere to a consistent alignment, so it can be funny when players' feelings about a subject or NPC make them break character. Sometimes games and players can have different conceptions on what choices are right, or at least consistent with previous behavior, and that friction can be very interesting. Do you have any experiences where you threw a wrench into the game's conception of how you as the player character should act? <laughs> Poor Liara! Oh my god, that's so good. It's so good. Because really it's a character I can't imagine, like, why? <laughs> like, Caden, by all means, like, like, yeah, Caden deserved to go into the bus every time. Even like, Ashley, <laughs> who's totally xenophobic. Both like, of them. <laughs> both of them. Both those game one characters. Both under the bus. Yeah. Get in the fucking yep. sea. Yep. Uh, you, you know why? You know why you were mistreated as a child, Caden? Because you're terrible. <laughs> like, after a point, I was like, I'm starting to get why they why you sort of got the shit kicked out of you at school, Caden. <laughs> oh my god. I just also love the the resting bitch face aspect of this. The like, like insulting, dunking on Liara, but ha having that face like the extreme oh corners, God, like just, <laughs> just like, just like the Michaela is not impressed meme every yeah. time at Liara, just like Ugh, you know. 
I am trying so hard to think about a time I did something like this. And I feel like that's consistent with me in general, like hating a character and treating them like crap, even though I love everybody else. But I'm failing to think of anything that funny and that extreme. I feel like any example will just pale in comparison to resting bitch face. I hate Liara, so I don't know. So in Mass Effect 2, remember that like your face would get like jacked up if you weren't oh, virtuous, yeah. which kind of pissed me off. Like, Or you had to pay just, for the operation. If yeah, it was want. a really yeah. heavy-handed thing. And also it was like, but a lot of those things that the game was judging you for were just like, to me, I was just skipping to the bottom of the page. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, there's blood in the water here. I yep. might as well be Han and shoot first, and let's just get this going, <laughs> right? Or, like, I had a lot of moments in that game where, like, I'd hear some, like, villain or semi-villain talking, and I really quickly just sort of hit the, oh, fuck this guy, yeah. you know, point. And then the shooting would start. And over time, the game eventually was like, wow, you're really, like, ruthless and brutal. And I'm like, well, no, like, I think I'm admirably utilitarian. Uh, yeah. Bad people have gotten killed. The universe is generally a better better place, and I've helped the good people. So and you were reading all that New Republic at the time. I'm, I'm <laughs> piecing it all together, Rob. Yeah. I'm figuring it all out. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I think, I mean, it's happened to me in a, in a few games. Like the whole morality system's not entirely lining up with uh, with, with with my view of myself uh, with, or or my character's actions. I think the game that subverts that the most consistently is. Uh, you know, is the Witcher, uh, mm-hmm. to, to be quite honest. But I think that's because it is such a morally chaotic universe that it consistently sabotages your attempts to be the virtuous hero and sort of tell people, like, Mass Effect is all about you going in and telling people how the world should be. Yeah. Every yeah. time you try to do that in The Witcher, chances are it's going to blow up in your face pretty horribly. Definitely. And, and Geralt is also a specific character. So yes. you're not that sort of blank slate every every woman or every man that uh, you know that Shepherd is too. So that also kind of complicates it a tiny bit. Although I, I, I think Renegade Femshep was not a blank slate. Like I was yeah, just, I was yeah. just going I was just going where um oh, what was the voice actress's name? Oh Jennifer Hale. Jenna yeah. Uh, I was just going where she was pointing. Like yeah. that that uh, like that performance was not a Paragon performance. That was a, <laughs> that was a, we're here to get things done. I'm in charge. And yeah. so I was like, all right, you're the captain. That's right. Well, she is commander, you know. Yep. I don't uh, understand how people can play that game not as femship. Like, I kind of don't, to be honest I, with you. Like, it actually kind of annoys me that for me, it, like, I wish I had that choice. And theoretically I do, but I just find the performances so vastly different. And yeah. the the uh, Hales is so much more compelling to me that it's like, I mean, man, you really have to want to play a dude with a penis. Uh, you in really that game. do. You really have to want it. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I didn't want it badly enough. He's uh, just so corny. Like, I can't get over it. He just sounds like a corny guy instead of like an interesting person. It's like, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. And like even even when Mass Effect 2 was just like sort of parading that weirdly sculpted Miranda booty around oh, in yeah, front of you. The butt, the butt uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah for I was, sure. Like I, it was like see what you're missing and I was like, yeah, but I'd have to spend the entire game with that dude. I mean, you still saw it as Femship. Like That's true. That booty shot was there when it was were, it was yeah, it was like it was one were. conversation after another with like your character <laughs> in the background center of the frame talking to a booty. 
Yeah, it was. Yeah. It is it, it, it weird. It was a weird game. It, was, it, it really it was. was. It, was <laughs> it was like the mid two thousands were a weird time in games. Yeah, it's damn true. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I think on that note, uh, on that weird time note, we should probably go to our weekend projects. So, Rob, what is just setting your world on fire in the positive way this week? Okay, so before I answer this, I really need to know how passionate you are about having your own weekend project this time because it's possible this just turns into a segment where we just talk for an hour and we'll we'll end up crowding out your your thing. I I'm okay either way. I'm reading a book that's going to take me a long time to finish. So, okay. I'm good. Okay. I'm good to go. Danielle? Yes. The first movie I watched on my setup was yeah. Aliens. Oh my god. Oh. The second best alien movie. The second so best alien movie. And the only <laughs> and, and there are only two. Well, well, to be honest with you, to be honest here. So the first alien is my favorite movie of all time. I think there is merit and value in all of the alien movies. All of them. Not the alien versus predator shit, but all no, the main those real. the main series, even Prometheus, even Resurrection. Even Alien 3. I think there is merit and value in all of those movies. I don't Every think they're alien as good. Is special. What's that? Every alien is special. Yes. I think they actually are. But okay. but yes, do 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 tell me about this incredible experience you had with James Cameron's beautiful, now 30-year-old masterpiece. Oh my god, it's 30 years old. I know it's crazy. Uh <laughs> yeah, like it's just so goddamn good. Oh, uh, it is such a brilliant First of all, so many so many films like end up flubbing the transition from one like the transition from one off movie to franchise, uh, the mm-hmm. transition from one creative lead to another. And what I love about that movie is just it's so brilliantly it spends the first hour connecting the second film to the first. Yeah, and it is in no rush to get you to the part where it's Marines versus Alien, um, and it's better for it. Like it trusts the audience, like. It trusts the audience to like be willing to sort of sit there and let relationships be established and characters be established and the setup to be established. It lets you do all of that, and that makes the suspense that much more intense. It makes when like the shit starts to go down, it's that much more meaningful. You know, I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she said something basically at the exact same time. Like I'd watched this a few years ago uh, with a with a friend of mine, Dean Tate. Uh, we watched it a few years ago. And we'd had the exact same exchange at the exact same point in the movie uh, a couple years ago, which is as the Marines are like moving in on the um, on the colony and they're sort of, you know, going from overwatch position to overwatch and everything. And those the the dudes with the smart guns are sort of making those exaggerated like, you know, (laughs) motions with them. Uh, Like my girlfriend makes the comment. She's like, you know, wow, like we're like over an hour into this thing. And nothing has happened yet, really. Like, we're just now getting to the part where they're at the colony. And we've had the same exchange a few years ago. And it is always amazing to me that, like, it just is willing to run that clock. Because by the time they're sort of exploring that facility, everything is at a fever pitch because you're already, like, invested in the characters and how this has been set up. And so when, like, people start getting knocked off... It's not just red shirts who are buying it. It's yeah. characters you thought would be like that you you think are cool and characters you thought would be around you thought would be around for a while, like the sergeant and stuff like that. Yes. 
Um, and then the other part of it that I really, really like is just um, how much it's kind of about, I don't know, like corporate st- structures or like corporate identity. Uh, I don't just mean like in the, in the in the sense of like companies, but like just in terms of like organizations. You know what I mean? Like institutional yeah. bodies. Uh, the fact that like Ripley comes back from this like absolutely nutty experience, her reward for all of that is just to basically be called on the carpet for the destruction of company property. Yeah, and to go through a pretty insulting and demeaning like inquiry, and then she's got no choice but to basically become a roughneck on a dockyard. Yep. The fact that, like, uh, Paul Reiser's character, um, just, yes, he's this oily, slimy character, but what's amazing is right till the end, he's still this, like, vaguely, like, sort of seemingly affable, like, laid-back Paul Reiser-type dude. Uh, And, you know, the only thing really wrong with him is that he's so subsumed by the company and like the desire to get a win that he will literally kill everyone on that mission for the possibility that like he'll get the pat on the head and the, you know, what that, that great line Sigourney Weaver uh, has toward the end where she's like, I really don't know who's worse us or them. You don't yeah. see them fucking, <laughs> fucking each other over for a percentage. Yeah. It's such a great line. Um, and it's such a, it, it's, it's such a great, encapsulation of like sort of the theme, sort of everything that like Wayland Yutani has represented through these two films. Um, God, I just, it's so, there's so much there. I truly love, now this, this goes for alien. It also goes for a lot of the films of uh, Paul. Oh God, I hope I don't mispronounce it, but Paul Verhoeven at the time, you know, mm-hmm. RoboCop and, and starship troopers. And, uh, you know, even, um, the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, uh, Did he do Total Recall? It for you wholesale. Total Recall. Okay. Uh, like those movies were so of the of the 80s and 90s, of the like most ridiculously, you know, sort of go corporate America time that were so anti-corporate in their message. And it's kind of beautiful. Like there's there's a real wonderful streak of that. And obviously all the, the alien movies, at least the first two are incredibly anti-corporate and it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful and it's so about these these very real and, and and flawed people who are just in these unbelievably fucked up circumstances and oh man i i also really love the uh how much this is sort of like a weirdly a vietnam movie like even right. in, down to its like aesthetics like the folks the actual marines look like very you know kind of oh they're wearing like mid 70s camo patterns yeah. and like yeah and the bandanas and everything, like it's very much like, oh yeah, we're we're really like we're talking about something in at the time very recent American history and like really really sort of touching on those things. And I always thought that was kind of like a brave and very cool thing uh, for Cameron to have done, or even if it wasn't his decision. Well, he was such a unbelievably you know uh, nitty gritty kind of guy that I'm sure it was his decision. But yeah, I always I always really appreciated that. A couple of years ago, when I was still at Polygon, uh, Ben Kuchera and I wrote a a beautiful ridiculous series, you know, where we went back and forth arguing whether Alien or Aliens was a better movie. And of course, I was on the side of Alien and I won, um, even in our little poll. I just have to put that in there. But I, I love this movie and I really did appreciate Ben made a really good argument for this movie being sort of a takedown of masculinity. It's yes. sort of like how 
you know, the very masculine, the powerful, you know, we're going to go in with guns blazing approach never worked. It never really helped. It was always kind of like, you know, the actual reality of this is more terrifying and more fragile and requires more cunning than than gunpowder. And it, it requires, like, it requires hiding. It requires things you would call cowardly behavior to be survivors. And that's always been really beautiful to me and always something I really appreciated about the movie. That, like, it's just, it's a little girl. I mean, as, as, you know, Newt's maybe not the finest part of the movie, but it is a little girl who's the only person who survives. She sure you know, can scream. Yeah, she can she can scream. I I honestly feel a little bad for that actress because uh, it's kind of like, well, you were known for being an annoying child who screamed a lot in a movie. Good, uh, but but it is cool that she's the one who survived. She's the one who is smart enough who sort of figured it out. She was the best one on her tricycle, so she's the one who made it clearly. Uh, and of course, how how Ripley is the one who who because she's a survivor, because she's smart, because she has the, the you know, the sort of lady balls to do what needs to be done, she makes it to the end, that sort of thing. That's always been appealing to me. It's always been something I always really, really liked about those movies, that even in, even when the shit goes down, women are not cowering in the men's arms. They are very much the survivors and the people who are resourceful enough to kind of make it to the end. Now, it's- you know, it doesn't always come so hot if you believe how Alien 3 begins but you know it's uh well, it's so something that was, i've never actually watched alien 3 and uh, like i hadn't until movie, last just, year but yes go on go on i just i don't want to because it's like the story is complete like that second yeah. movie kind of wraps up all the parts of the arc that like it, it wraps up ripley's arc so beautifully right like she has sort of the beginnings of like maybe a new family you know, if she if she wants one, she's put this experience. She's laid this experience to rest. Uh, the aliens are are dead. Like I mean, by and large, like maybe dead. there's still something out of the spaceship, but like the entire facility's nuked. Like they're gone. Yeah. Um. And finally, it's sort of ending on this peaceful and hopeful note. And I I kind of like. I actually I, I have very little patience for whenever a, a a a collection of media or a series develops what I call a Sipkowitz problem. Mm. Uh, did you ever watch <laughs> NYPD Blue? A little bit, yeah. I know what you're referring so, to. Yeah, so the Sipkowitz yeah. problem is whenever, like, you just need some, like to have more plot for plot's sake, the the series, the the thing needs to advance. There's know. a character you go to, and you just fuck their shit up relentlessly. Yeah. And NYPD Blue's solution was every time that like things seem to be settling down and finding a stable footing, something horrible would happen to Andy Sipkowitz. Oh, uh, just like, yeah. I mean, over the course of like, his, his, his wife's killed, his son has gone down, like just, oh, just like clockwork. Yeah. Like, oh, Andy started to like come out of a shell a little bit. Time to kill someone. And I kind of feel that same way with, with Ripley, right? Where it was like, okay, we've just got to drag you through the mire one more time and flick some new horrible thing on you. Because uh, <laughs> otherwise, if there isn't some sort of traumatic experience, if you're not being traumatized, well, really, count. what are we even doing? Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and the other problem is that, like, Aliens really succeeds at making you care about her relationship with, like, Newt Hicks. Yeah. Um, oh, what's the android's name? The oh, Bishop. Android. Bishop. Bishop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and and so as I understand it, like Alien Three basically starts by like, and then they were all killed on the their yep. way back to their home planet, except Ripley. Yep. And yep. I'm like, well, okay, but then at that point, you just you just kind of took a big dump all over a really good movie and all the good work it did establishing characters. Yeah, uh, all to do this weird uh, frontier horror story. Yes, yes, I I think you're right. I mean, I I think. One and two are light years beyond three and four and Prometheus. Um, but taken, I, I, so what I did a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, actually, I went through in order every alien movie in order of like the year it was released, not in order of, you know, Prometheus first or whatever, because that's bullshit. You know, alien one, aliens, alien three, alien resurrection, and then Prometheus. Um, and what I found out, and this was actually my very first time watching alien three, I'd seen everything else, you know many times. Um, what I found out was that I really liked Alien 3 in isolation. I don't think it's as good as the other movies. I don't think it's a great continuation. And it is a giant bummer. And you're totally right. It is just sort of plot for plot's sake to just, oh, they're dead now. Bye. And uh, the ending of it, you know, Ripley commits suicide to save everyone is kind of shitty. Uh, but it is a really dark and interesting sci-fi movie. It's it's like the darkest Star Trek episode that they would never actually do because it was too dark and brutal and violent, but was really, really interesting and kind of well-made for what it is, the frontier horror story. Resurrection is a beautiful pile of garbage that is enjoyable to me in the same way that Jupiter Ascending is enjoyable to me, which is you don't go in thinking you're going to be transfixed by a, you know, a dark and serious piece of entertainment. You go in to watch a wacky French mishmash of Firefly and Alien. And uh, taking on those merits. <laughs> it's such a, as they are. Such as they are. It is a very enjoyable piece of entertainment. It's actually, See, my, my girlfriend, I'm going to, bla- I'm putting her on blast. She really likes Alien Resurrection. She thinks it's hilarious. She thinks it is like one of the funniest movies ever. And I'm kind of with her because it is very, very, very dumb and very enjoyable. Yeah. So I caught a, I caught a good portion of that on TV a few weeks ago. <gasps> Oh, yeah. And the thing that was driving me crazy about it, it was like, it's just, it's a parody of an alien movie. Oh, completely. Uh, and they're, it, like, to the point where it, it's, it's one of those things, and, and this is the other, th- this is the other part of it, is like, in the 80s, you have this wave of really good action movies. And yeah. Mitch Kropata actually wrote a great essay uh, back when, he, back when he updated his blog <laughs> uh, about yeah. this sort of series of, of great, of great action movies, uh, Die Hard. Uh, Predator, uh, I think Aliens, but he sort of made the point that you did, Danielle, which is like these are all movies that are that are kind of about um, the limits of masculinity. That's not enough to be a badass. Yes, uh, that like real strength has to be found elsewhere. Um, and the other part of it, though, is they all a lot of these end up also being like really sort of blue collar films. In sure. a lot of ways, like Alien, yes. Alien is super, super blue collar. It's 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 a bunch of like mining workers, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, under attack. Truckers. Yeah, kind yeah, of thing. yeah. Uh, Die Hard is you know he's he's you know basically just a just a, a grunt of a cop, basically New York cop. Yeah, yeah, and like really insecure because <laughs> the world's passing him by. His wife's an executive, and what's his place in this world? Um, but the other part of it is these are all films that uh, you know are largely driven by like practical effects. Uh, they're they're sort of convincingly grimy. Uh, the things that you see there are really there. Uh, the types of people you see in movies tend to look 
a lot like less like movie stars yeah, and they look like more people. like yeah, yeah exactly yes um like you know grimy exhausted beat to shit Sigourney Weaver is the most beautiful person in these in these films absolutely everyone else kind of just looks like they just got off working a swing shift at like the local garage and oil change center or something like yeah. that which isn't a knock against it it just it just feels very convincing and lived in and the thing that starts to drive me a little nuts uh certainly watching like alien resurrection is it's like watching modern Hollywood sort of trying to imitate movies that it used to just be able to make. Yeah. Um, and it's like this really imperfect shitty copy because it's like, well, no, like all movies like kind of have these aesthetics now. Like everyone's a, everyone, even the character actors need to have like a certain je ne sais quoi. Uh, let's say like they have to look like movie stars. They have to look like movie characters. Uh, the sets have to be, um, you know, a little bigger. Squeaky and, clean. Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah. And and, and if, if there's grime, it's sort of a very artificial. You know what I mean? It just doesn't feel. Yeah. It doesn't. It, it feels like set designer's idea of what lived in working spaces look like. Yes. Uh, yes. But not the reality. And so that's what drives me nuts about like watching Alien Resurrection. Is it's like watching the reanimated corpse of like a loved <laughs> one, sort of trying to just get through a family dinner. And it's like, this isn't like, no, like I'm not the only one seeing this, right? We all know they're dead. Um, that's, that's how it feels to me. It's, 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 it's some sort of like, it's, it's just, it's just nightmarish yes. for me. Yes. And that's the same thing that happened with really all those franchises, right? Rambo turns into a dumb fucking series about, uh, you know, American triumphalism and like just getting ever more roided up and beating the shit out of your enemies. Yes. Uh, Die Hard sort of follows the same arc. Uh, you go from sort of having this meditation on internationalist culture and sort of the place of sort of like white working class insecurities uh, to a heavy-handed movie about racial racial identity starring Jeremy Irons and Samuel L. Jackson. Because yeah. uh, that's a convincing group of characters. They're going to find themselves <laughs> together uh, in the middle of New York. So, like, just stuff like that. It starts to drive me crazy. And yeah. I, like, I end up hating these movies even more because it's like, it's now an era where everything has to become a franchise or a commodity. And we can't actually have a new idea or establish a new aesthetic. So instead, we just have to bastardize the old ones and try and taint your memories of them as well. I think this is a, you're absolutely spot on. And I also think that's sort of what happened with the ghostbusters as well. And I, I liked the new ghostbusters. I thought it was very entertaining. I thought the ladies in it were great, but it was missing that sort of, you know, the earlier movies, especially the first one had that kind of blue collar roughness about oh, it. They were movie, kind of these the first dorks movie feels just, so New York. Oh, yes, yes. I, I seriously, like my very, when I thought of New York, when I was young, when I was growing up, I thought of Ghostbusters. I really did. Those, that's what I thought of. Like, that's what it looks like. Yes, that is clearly what Manhattan looks like. And, you know, when I walk around now in this city, I'm like, oh, yeah, it looks like Ghostbusters. I still have that about me. That's how much it sort of cemented itself the, in my brain. The you group know? of characters gathered at the, the storage unit in yeah. Ghostbusters, the, the Con Ed guy. Yeah. Um, like I think I think a, a couple of cops are there. Uh, like the group of people arguing over whether or not to flip that switch, and the Con Ed guys in the middle of that, just yeah. like looking like I 
I've never seen anything like this. I'm not <laughs> this shit sure. shit is above my if, pay grade. Yeah. yeah. And, like, I have always identified so much because he just looks like this average schlub. You know what I mean? It's yes, like his helmet's yes. a little ill-fitting. His clothes aren't, like, particularly well-fitting. Yes. He just looks like a guy who, like, showed up to work that morning and, like, holy shit, you're pulled into a sci-fi movie or something. <laughs> exactly. Like, and you don't get that feeling as, as much anymore because it just feels like that entire experience has tended to be erased a little bit um kind of too polished yeah 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 and it just it, it bothers the shit out of me and it, it bothers me i think even more when like you know when you look at like tv comedy that purports to be about like you know normal everyday families they're all rich as shit yeah, like exactly. modern family look at their clothes look at yeah. modern yeah modern family oh they're just like us yeah except they make like except the like the most middle class family there has to be making like mid six figures oh for like, sure easily like yeah. dad's dad, like grandpa's in the millions. Um, yeah. It's just, it's absurd. Like uh, blackish is like, just it, like astonishingly affluent, um, which yeah, that's, that's part of its premise. But at the same time, what, what I don't see is, is many shows like Roseanne, you know, <laughs> Roseanne uh, taxi. Yes, um, yes. Shit. I mean, even cheers, right? Like cheers yes. had a sort of cross section, but like with the exception of, of Ted Danson, who even Ted Danson had kind of weird Ted Danson ish, handsome looks. <laughs> like it wasn't a yeah. normal conventional handsome. Yeah. Uh, like w- with the exception of him, like everyone there kind of looked like you could have picked them up on a street somewhere in Boston. For sure. And, yeah, I, I just it just bothers me that all that yeah. seems to have gone by the boards. And you watch a movie like Aliens with like a bunch of convincingly like grimy, strung out Marines, uh, you know, and you realize you're probably not going to see anything like this in part just because of how filmmaking techniques have changed, but also because we've lost the ability or interest in showing particular types of people or stories and that gets me a little down but it also makes me treasure these movies like that much more yeah it it, i feel the same way and regarding ghostbusters if i may go on the slightest tangent go it bums me out a little because i really i enjoyed the new movie i like those four characters i would rather hang out with them i would rather watch them go on adventures than the kind of like kind of sketchy assholes <laughs> that were in the first movie. Like it, so it bums me out that they are in the movie that is the glossier, less cool, less real feeling, less, less New York feeling movie than the original movie. Like, like I want to hang out with Leslie Jones. Like that sounds like a way more fun day to me than hanging out with, you know, Sketcho. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, so it, it, it bums me out that, that it feels like now there are there are some better opportunities sometimes, occasionally, for women in comedy, in action comedies. There are some some better opportunities for, for women to be kind of like stars of the show. Not many more, but some more than the era that we're talking about. So it bums me out so much that, you know, we're maybe just starting to see some of this stuff happen, but... It's in an era where everything looks so glossed over and everybody's so Hollywood pretty and, and so ugh. And that's also part of why I like Orange is the New Black so much because people look like real people on that show. Like the women on that show, there's kind of one, 
you know, they talk about this, how, how you know, Piper is like the hot blonde. And besides her, everybody kind of looks like a human being. Like, <laughs> people actually look like real people. The men look like kind of normal guys, the doofy, you know, kind of guards or, or whatever. And the women look like real women of different shapes, sizes, races, cultures. And that's a cool and wonderful thing. And not something we see often in, you know, anything. Uh, so, yeah, God. No, and, Aliens and when you do see movie. it. When you do yeah. see it, it's like, yes. oh, you're the person who can do that role. So you'll be right. like playing that same. Like, it's the Margot Martindale thing. Yeah. Oh, where it's yes. like, yes. oh, you're awesome. You do such a good job of playing like a normal, like everyday frumpy looking person <laughs> right. that we can identify with. Nobody else could possibly do that. But there's only room for one of you in yeah. our stories. So Margot oh, Martindale, so fucked up. Yeah. we need to bring you in for every single prestige drama we possibly can where we need a convincingly oh, like God. middle-aged uh, average looking like, woman. A woman uh, who looks like a normal woman. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like Yeah, oh, and God. like that, and that's not knocking against like uh, like Mar- like Margot Martindale deserves she's every great. role she gets. Yes, like, yes she's, she does. She's a goddamn I read this interview with her by the way. <laughs> Do you know Margot Martindale doesn't watch shit? Oh, God, like, that makes me love she, her even more. Like, when she did Justified, <laughs> she'd never seen an episode of Justified. Mm-hmm. Just had no idea what she was stepping into. Just completely, like, just rolled <gasps> with it, read the script, liked it. Uh, uh, same, I think same deal with the Americans. Like, she just doesn't read, like, she doesn't watch, <laughs> she doesn't watch, like, many TVs or TV or movies. Uh, so it. she just goes in cold and uh, just, like, fucking nail, nails it. Have you seen any of... You started watching BoJack Horseman. I don't know if you got. Oh to the god. Okay, Margot Mar- Oh it. god. So I, I've seen the first one. Oh my god. So so BoJack yes. Horseman. Um, yes. This this show's gone completely off it's fucking okay. rails. <laughs> by the way, I apologize, listeners. Uh, this, is, this is like something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, but here we so BoJack Horseman. Uh, I've seen the first episode where she makes an appearance, which is a really <gasps> dark fucking episode. Oh yeah. But this is the thing that. Danielle, I don't feel you adequately prepared me for, mm-hmm. but you would have sold me on it. Mm-hmm. Bojack Horseman isn't actually a comedy. Oh, no. It's actually a really dark Hollywood noir. Oh, um, that's fucking awesome. And yeah. it's, it's just like from the intro, it has this like, it has this really creepy, stylish, uh, like classically noir intro. But yeah. the, the, the thing that's funny about it is all the characters are fucking animals and they have those little animal, like, you know, be, t- like those, those little animal ticks that you mentioned yes. earlier. But beyond that, like, Jesus Christ, like this is a show that relentlessly sort of drives oh, home the idea that like, you can't really change. You can't really grow. You are who you are. And it's really fucking bleak, but I love it. Oh, yes. I think it's one of the finest things on TV right now. Next to the Americans, of course. Oh, and the expanse and all the other things we talk about all the time. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it. I I will just say uh, I won't do my weekend project that I was going to do because I have a lot more to say about it. But it's a book and I'm not nearly through with it. So I will just say a thing I mentioned earlier, Stranger Things. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm sure we could do a Stranger Things episode, but uh, that gets my endorsement. I thought it was fucking good. All right. I will. I will have to take a look at that. Yeah, because uh, it's it's on that. I don't know what it is. Like I just I tend to be really skeptical of 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 Netflix produced things, with the exception of like really? Peaky Blinders. And, okay. Well, okay. increasingly Bojack Horseman, but like House of Cards didn't do it for me. Um, God, I tried to watch Bloodlines, but I was like, holy shit, no. <laughs> I've actually not watched either of those things, so maybe 
I got you into her. You need to get a Patricia because my girlfriend has turned me on to like, other than you, my girlfriend is the one who puts something on and I'm just like, holy shit, this is amazing. She's just good at finding these things. So I'll just, I just, just read Patricia's Twitter feed. That's, that's like how to find great TV, I think. All it's, right, we'll do. It's helpful. <laughs> oh my goodness. So uh, on that note, uh, Aliens is a great movie and uh, read my girlfriend's Twitter feed and... I think it's time for us to go out and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show, and we really hope you are, if you have a moment to go ahead and rate us on iTunes or, you know, write in or just tell a friend, that helps us so, so much. We appreciate it. It means the world to us. Uh, Yeah, word of mouth really, really does help us. So if you have a second, go ahead and do that. Tell that friend, write a note, do whatever you got to do. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Even Alien 3. I think there is merit and value in all of those movies. I don't Every think they're as good. Every Alien is special. What's that? Every Alien is special. What's that? Every Alien is special. What's that? Every Alien is special. Yes. All oh, right. That was a good one. Fucking nailed it. That's right. Fucking nailed it.